Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Jesus said some hard stuff. Stuff like plucking out your eye and drinking blood. Some truths in the Bible are difficult to understand and even harder to swallow. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, such a person cannot be my disciple. Join us for Hard Candy as we unwrap the hard sayings of Jesus. All right. How's everyone doing? Good to see you, Liquid Church. I'm Pastor Tim. Hey, let's welcome our brothers and sisters in New Brunswick, Nutley and Mountainside. Glad they're with us today. Joining us, this is the finale of our series, Hard Candy. We're unwrapping the hard sayings of Jesus. On your way in today, you should have gotten an atomic fireball. Did everybody get one? I can see who's eating it already. Your face is a little like puckered. Uh, It is one of those red hots. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. We'll pass them out to you. The reason we chose the atomic fireball today, I'm going to be talking about hell. And uh, if you know anything about hell, hell is hot metaphorically. Like in our head, we think, oh, flames. But there's a very sweet center. I'm not here to scare you today. I I think the the doctrine of hell is very often misunderstood. And in fact, there's a lot of debate today. Is hell even real? That's something I want to get into. And you may ask, you know, well, why are we going to talk about hell in church? I'm not even sure I believe that. A lot of Americans and, and, you know, forward thinkers, they kind of think, well, you know, heaven, yes, hell, no. Uh, But we're going to talk about hell for a simple reason, because Jesus talked about it often. In fact, over 20% of Jesus' teachings were devoted to heaven, hell, and the afterlife. But there's a lot of debate right now in our culture about this. A couple of Easter's ago, Time Magazine featured a cover that said, what if there's no hell, because there's a lot of modern theologians questioning the doctrine of hell, like, you know, a place of eternal fire and torment that seems cruel and barbaric. Like, how could a God of love send people to hell? You ever, ever wonder that? You know, fire and brimstone don't seem very loving. Isn't hell just an invention of, you know, southern fundamentalist preachers, you know, turn or burn, baby, just kind of scare people into heaven or something? The reality is Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in all of Scripture, and he's actually very clear and matter-of-fact about this topic. So would you open your Bible uh, right now at your campus and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at a story Jesus tells. It's a real-life story. It's not a parable that Jesus tells about two men who die, and when they pass from this life into the next, one goes to paradise The other gets the atomic fireball. And this story is called The Rich Man and Lazarus. It's really a study in contrast. Luke 16, let's read this together. We're going to start at verse 19. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat, What fell from the rich man's table? Now, this is kind of disgusting. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Just just stop right there before you go further. Jesus kind of sets up. He says, there's two guys, right? There's this rich man and Lazarus. And he says, I want you to imagine a split screen. On this side, you have a guy dressed in purple, which was basically the color of royalty. 
So this guy was very wealthy. He was well off. He had servants, big mansion. He lived large. And on the other hand, he goes, there's this beggar named Lazarus. He's covered with sores. In other words, he's not wealthy. He has no health. He has disease. He's starving. He kind of begs for scraps from the rich guy's table. And he's so weak. Even these dogs come and kind of sniff him and lick his sores. It's kind of hard to imagine. But then I got thinking about that night I spent on the streets with the homeless folks in Newark. And I remember catching a glimpse of this. I saw the exposed feet of a homeless person in Newark begging in the winter, kind of as people just kind of walked by and stepped over him. And that's what basically is happening here. This rich man kind of neglects Lazarus during his life on earth. So two people, Jesus says, are in contrast. Now watch, verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Here it comes, ready? In what? In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in what? I'm in agony in this fire. This is where you get the idea of hell, a place of flames. But Abraham replied, now, son, remember, in your lifetime, you received what? Good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great what? A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Stop again. Again, important to realize this is not a parable Jesus is telling. It is a real life story. How do we know that? In all the parables Jesus taught, he never gives his characters a personal name. But in this story, he calls the beggar Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus who he raised from the dead, but a beggar. But the rich man has no name. And there's a reason for that, as we're going to see. But basically, Jesus is giving us a supernatural glimpse into what awaits every single person in eternity. Only because Jesus is our creator and he's also our Lord and Savior can he give a perspective of what awaits us when we die. And basically, he paints this picture. He draws a picture of two places. Um, those of you who like to draw, this is a big moment for you, all right? We're going to have some fun drawing. If you look in your notes, I left you space to draw. And here's what I want you to draw. You can draw a very large circle like this. Look at that. That's, I'm getting better. Am I get, I'm getting better at drawing. Look at this. And I'm going to bisect, if I look, one line straight across it, okay? So you've got a circle with a line across it. And basically, he's like, Jesus is like, there are two places where these two men go, and here is the twist. It says, Lazarus died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is simply an Old Testament way, a Jewish way of talking about heaven. This is, again, this is before the New Testament is, is written. They're living this out. But that's what Abraham's side is, a place of comfort and blessing where you went to be in the presence of God and the forefathers of your faith. Understand? At the same time, the rich man who isn't named, he dies but winds up in hell, right? That's what it says there in the scriptures. It says he actually goes to the grave and then he actually goes to Gehenna or hell, Hades. And this would have been shocking to Jesus' audience. Because in Jesus' day, it was assumed if you were wealthy, it's because God was blessing you. If you are rich, that means you're a good person, a righteous person who God is just blessing. But that's the strangest thing. The rich man ends up in hell. 
Conversely, in Jesus' day, it was thought if you were poor, you were cursed by God. If you had sickness, it was God withdrawing his protection from you. And you were cursed. You were not valued by God. But surprise, surprise, Jesus says, guess what? Lazarus ends up in heaven. Jesus' audience, traditional Jewish folks, would have literally been thinking, what the hell? This doesn't make sense. This is turning my understanding of hell and the afterlife on its head. And the reality is, yeah, this is 2,000 years ago. But most Americans, if we're honest, if they believe in hell, we have a similar assumption. Well, only bad people go to hell. But Jesus says, oh, no, good people are there too. And we're like, what good news is this? See, Jesus is teaching flies in the face of three very popular views of the afterlife that are circulating in our culture. I listed these in your notes. These are three views you really need to be aware of when you're talking with your family and friends because they're quite popular views of the afterlife, but they're actually not biblical at all. And the first is universalism. Basically, universalists teach that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. I think that is the American belief. It's like if there is a hell, it's either empty or very sparsely populated. You know, maybe Hitler and, you know, dictators... But in Jesus' story, that's not the case. The rich man spends his whole life stepping over people in need, rejecting God and saying, basically, I'm God. I'm going to serve myself. And for that, he spends eternity in hell. But universalists say, well, how could a loving God let someone spend eternity in hell? And so what some universalists will claim is that after you die, you get a second chance. Jesus will reveal himself to you, and he'll melt your heart, and then you get to go to heaven. That's a wonderful idea, by the way, isn't it? It's a very, it's a lovely idea, except for verse 26, because while the rich man's suffering in hell, he says, hey, Lazarus, why don't you come help me? But look what he's told. Between us and you, a great what? Chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you can't, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So if you're drawing, you can draw another parallel line here, just right in the middle, chasm. In other words... There are fixed destinations in God's great universe. Your soul has a destiny, and the choices we make in this life ripple into eternity. And you know what? That's powerful to think about because it means the decisions that we make right now about who we are. Are we sinners in need or are we, you know, good people? Is Jesus a good teacher or is he God? Have eternal consequences in the life to come. Everybody spends forever somewhere. Now, some of you right now, you're drawing and you're like, oh, I I get this. I know what this is called. Is this the purgatory? Okay, that's the second view. If you grew up Catholic, then you're probably familiar with the doctrine of purgatory. There's this in-between place in the afterlife for souls who aren't quite good enough for heaven yet. And so what purgatory is in Catholic thought is your sins need to be purged or purified by fire. And so you go to purgatory. So if you look at Roman Catholic cathedrals, you'll see works of art like this. This is from a cathedral actually in Germany. Germany. Um, You'll see these men, they're locked in like a prison. This is purgatory. They're being burned by the flames. They're like, let us out, let us out. And they're like, not quite yet. Uh, You've got to wait while your sins are kind of purified away, and then we're going to call your names. And that's what it was. In the medieval mind, the Catholic mind, purgatory was like a really hot waiting room where people had to wait and wait and wait until their name was called. And in the meantime, they were tortured. It's kind of like the division of motor vehicles, okay? (laughs) This context. The purpose, the problem with with the theory of purgatory is twofold. First, it's never mentioned actually in the Bible. The second is that purgatory contradicts the words of Jesus himself. 
If you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross between two thieves, one says, Jesus, remember me. We're about to die. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, I tell you the truth. What's the word? Say it together, church. Today, you will be with me where? In paradise. Not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, not weeks or months after you're done paying for your sins. But today, you will be with me in paradise because I'm the one paying for your sins right now on this cross. In other words, the thief didn't have to do one good thing. He didn't actually go to church. He was never baptized. He did not do penance. He did not receive communion. Like Lazarus, he just recognized his spiritual poverty. I can't save myself. And he threw himself on the mercy of Christ. And at death, his soul is instantly in the presence of God in heaven. And this is very good news, by the way. If you were raised Catholic, what this means is you have a thing called the assurance of salvation. Your faith in Christ, it's not dependent on what you do, but what Jesus did. And so you can't lose your salvation. You don't actually have to spend your life wondering, am I doing enough good things so that when I die, I don't go down, I go up. I don't want to be caught somewhere in between. The good news is Jesus says, no, today you can be sure you'll be with me in paradise, not purgatory. And that's a tremendous relief. When you stake your faith on relying on the righteousness of Christ, right? We've talked about this the last few weeks. The righteousness of Christ, meaning it's not your good works, but it's what Christ did on the cross. He lived the only sinless life. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we deserved. And when he forgives our sins, he gives us his righteousness. And God says, I look at you and I see my son. Therefore, enter in, good and faithful servant. Even if you haven't proved it, I look at Jesus' righteousness in you. That's a powerful thing. Now, the third view, reincarnation in our culture, uh, you probably know a little about if you watched Oprah. Uh, it says, you have multiple successive lives so that when you die, you, you die and come back and you die and come back and you basically keep coming back until you finally get it right and you get to pay off, you know, your karmic debt to the gods. But that too flies in the face of scripture that clearly teaches, watch what scripture says, man is destined to die how many times? Say it together. Once. And then after that, to face judgment. That's the bad news, right? Everybody dies once and then is judged. But the good news is the second half of this verse that continues. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. Not you, Christ will. (laughs) Not to bear sin, but to what? Bring what? Salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen? We don't come back a second time, but Jesus Christ does. He came a first time to pay our debt of sin, so there's no need for you to come back and try to pay for your debt yourself. See, karma's a mother. Karma says, what goes around comes around. But grace is, in Jesus Christ, you get what you don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. Amen? Now, the question that I have is like, well, then why did the rich man go to hell? Let me be very clear here. He did, it's not because God hates rich people, okay? Think. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, in some ways, it's his, his wealth did not send him to hell any more than Lazarus' poverty got him into heaven. Notice only Lazarus has a proper name, but the rich man doesn't. Why? That contrast is intentional. See, in Israel, the rich man couldn't possibly have been actually an atheist or a pagan or a New Age re- reincarnationist, Okay. This rich man was rich for a single reason, probably because he believed the God of the Bible, he prayed to the God of the Bible, went to temple, read the Torah, he obeyed the laws and advanced in society, and he's wealthy, and yet he's in hell without a name. Why? Look at verse 25. Abraham says, remember, in your lifetime, you received your what? Your good things. In other words, 
We all receive good things and blessings in our life, but the problem happens when we build our identity on them. Because in the afterlife, everything we have is stripped away, and it reveals what your identity was based around. Tim Keller, who I'm indebted to, said, status and wealth were the basis for this man's identity. And now that his status and his wealth are stripped away, there's no him left. He's just a rich man or he's nothing. He has no identity. He's gone. He's nameless. And the idea here is that Jesus is redefining your definition of sin. If I said, what's sin? You know what most folks would say? They say, well, sin is doing bad things. But here, Jesus said, actually, sin is taking good things and making them God things. The things in your life that God gives you, and then it becomes, I'm driven by this. These are now ultimate things that define me. It's idolatry. Sin is not just breaking God's law. It's building your identity around anything other than God, like money or your career or relationships or sex or ministry. It doesn't, on the surface, nothing wrong with those things. But see, if somebody's need, take relationships. If like, if your God is your relationship, okay, small, small G notice we use there, right? That means when you're a boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse, they kind of become the meaning of your life, for your self-worth. When your relationship fails, what happens? It falls apart, so do you. When, you're, when your partner leaves, you're shattered. If you're single, I can't stand to be alone. It's hell. If you can't have kids, you get embittered. And people like that are hell to be around, aren't they? That's who this rich man is. His sin wasn't being wealthy. It's that in this life, his money became his God. Consumed by his own little deal, it blinded him to the need of others. He refused to actually even see Lazarus take him in and care for him because he's hard-hearted to God. and He doesn't have the compassion of the Holy Spirit in him. That's why he's in hell. He neglected others and focused on himself and people like that are hell to be around, aren't they? I'm going to take a risk here and give you an example from reality TV, which I believe deserves its own special level in hell. Uh, has anybody ever watched The Real Housewives uh, of Beverly Hills or Atlanta? Or I hear they're now in Nashville. They're, they're spawning, evil spawns. And um, it's an awful show, okay? It's just awful. Don't watch it. This is not a recommendation, okay? I don't think I'm going to hell for watch it, watching it, but I think it gives a preview of what hell's like. Basically, the show stars these six kind of wealthy women. They live this, this sumptuous life of luxury in Beverly Hills. Uh, they don't wear purple linen, mostly sequins and gold lame instead. But they have chauffeurs, they have butlers, they have servants, they throw these parties, they fly around, they don't work. And they are the most miserable bunch of people on the face of the planet. It is just, I, I don't say this, like, they're awful. They're gossipy and bike backbiting and claw and they're materialistic. And all their relationships revolve around being rich and famous. That's their identity and it's made their lives hell. This one was a former child star, and when she lost her career, she became an alcoholic because that was her identity, stripped away, and now she's an alcoholic, and her sister has been always jealous of her, and she's married and has kids, but she attacks her at a cocktail party. She pulled her hair and everything. This one broke up a marriage. She's married to Kelsey Grammer uh, and broke up his first marriage by having an adulterous affair, but then during the second season... Uh, Kelsey Grammer wanted a newer model, so he finds another one, and now she's trying to get back at him. It's just absolutely awful, okay? All they do is cry, claw, and catfight, which is why it's good television, right? You know how the Bible describes hell? A place where there's weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. People constantly in conflict because it's all about me. And my money's become my identity, and people serve me like this rich man 
who turn the good things in this life into God things, and it isn't pretty. In the final season, one of their husbands actually hung himself after his business went bankrupt. Why? Because when your idol is stripped from you, it reveals what you worship, where you're getting your identity. Now, I don't want to just bash reality TV stars, right, because that's an easy target. But it's true for all of us on some level, right? You're in church today. You're like, well, that's not me. That's not me. <laughs> it's not just rich people in hell. The problem is Jesus says, oh, yeah, probably second level. There's religious ones too. <laughs> you remember he's always tangling with the Pharisees, the professional religious experts. They followed the Bible. They studied the law. They obeyed the rules. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 22? He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, two-faced. You travel over land and sea, your missionaries, to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him what? Twice as much a son of hell as you are. Hey, you're in church. Good for you. You get two, right? It's like, what? I can't, people would be like, you kidding me? Have you ever wondered, and maybe you're here today, and you're like, I can't believe he's admitting it. Religious people are held to be around, aren't they? When I say religion, I mean they're man-made attempts to construct rules and obey them so that I'm more righteous than you are. And I believe that I'm earning God's favor. If I obey him, he has to take me to heaven. And that's what a lot of religious people are. They say, I go to church, uh, I, I give money, I pray out loud. But the reality is my identity is not based on my love for God. It's based on my fear of God. I don't want to go to hell. You guys remember uh, Dana Carvey? He'd do that character in Saturday Night Live, the church lady. Isn't that special? Yeah. In other words, she was the most self-righteous person who was so blind to her own foibles. And, and, you know, that's what the reality is. That attitude of religious pride and judgment turns your soul toxic. You know what Jesus said? He said, woe to you, teachers of the law. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. It looks good here, but what? Inside they're what? Full of greed and self-indulgence. Have you ever met a religious person who is, who is two-faced on the surface? It's, I, I remember traveling down south, and they were so funny. I'd never heard this one before. They said, oh, you know, Sheila, bless her heart, you know. And they say, bless your heart because she is the most conniving. And they kind of rip people. They're to your face, super polite, but behind their back, they're just like they're full of all this toxic impurity. Maybe that's why you're not a Christian. Maybe that's why you were nervous coming here today, because you've been exposed to religious hypocrisy. Guess what? Jesus hates it too. See, the sin is when you construct your identity around anything but the righteousness of Christ, who you are in Jesus and what he has done, not what you do. When you turn good things, it could be riches, it could be relationships, it could even be religion, into your God, the source of who you are. They put their faith into something else. And that something, if it's taken to its logical extreme, think about it. What is it for you? It sparks what? A fire in your soul that can't be quenched. A spiritual fire. A cosmic fire. Look how Jesus describes hell. It says the rich man is, he says, I'm in agony in this fire. This is where, by the way, people get this idea of hell as a place of like, oh, fire and brimstone and flames. And it's very interesting because it makes people squirm. And a lot of times, um, as a pastor, people walk up and they'll say, hey, Tim, I just need to know, is hell a literal place of fire and brimstone? And one of the things that I often say is, you know, it's possible the biblical image of fire is a metaphor. And people go, okay. And then I say, it may be a metaphor for something infinitely worse than fire. What if you had to spend eternity 
with hundreds of thousands of angry, venomous housewives (laughs) or judgmental church ladies or sexual predators who only love themselves and use others and devour them. That's agony. Do you know people who are hell to be around in this life? Imagine them a thousand years from now in the next one. Take the rich man, for instance. I love this, by the way. Do you notice in verse 24? He says, hey, it's hot in here. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. The guy's in hell and he's still bossing Lazarus around. (laughs) That's incredible. He's like, oh man, it's getting hot in here. Lazarus, bring me a pole in spring. He doesn't even ask to get out of hell and go to heaven. He says, Lazarus, you come down here. (laughs) It shows his heart hasn't changed. See, when it comes to hell, God's not on the hook. Our heart is. The popular perception of the Christian God is that he throws people into hell as if people are like climbing up the sides like, please let me out, let me out. God's saying, ha ha, no, it's hell for you. Get down there. But the truth of the biblically is that hell is your choice. Everybody who goes to hell will choose to be there. They've simply already said on this life, I don't need God. It's about me. I am God. I don't need you. And God says, suit yourself. I'm going to give you what you want. That's cursedness. They've made their life on earth about stepping over other people, stiff-arming God in eternity. God gives them what they want. It's just the logical progression of the life they've begun living on earth, only taken to its awful extreme. The guy doesn't ask to get out of hell. He invites Lazarus in. Do you see the fire in his heart? Do you see it in your own? This chasm is as wide as the human heart, you and me. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Think about that. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. People have choice all the time if they're going to make it about the good life or the God life. You have that choice right now. You're making that choice right now as I'm speaking. How would you describe your current life on earth? Are you happy or would people say they are hell to be around? (laughs) It's an indicator of whether you have a heart of flesh or if it's led by the spirit. See, God never dangles any of us over hell as a threat. He says, I want to forgive your sin. I want to fill your heart with my Holy Spirit, which will give you, actually take you out of hell. It will give you a love for God. It will inflame you with compassion for others. But it's your choice. You got to make that in your heart. Will this life be about the good life? Turning your own righteousness, your own vain attempts to save yourself or the God life? The righteousness of Christ is your identity and it wells up in this loving service for others. Here's the deal, guys. What you choose now, it sets your life on a certain course that will reach its logical conclusion in the life to come. That's the truth. And the rich man actually realizes that. Look at it in verse 25. He says, Abraham replied, son, what's this word? Remember. So hell is a place of memory. You can remember things. That in your lifetime, you receive good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. In other words, both heaven and hell will be a place where we have a a memory, a remembrance of things that happened on earth. And that's a sobering thought. It means we will remember opportunities we had to be compassionate, to be generous, or to ignore others. We will remember the opportunities that we had actually to receive the salvation that Christ offers and said, I think this is the Holy Spirit talking to me. I think, but I don't think today is the day. I believe that there are people who are being tormented in hell Because they will actually have heard the gospel presented and the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart and saying, you need to repent of your sins, receive my love. And they'd be like, no, I don't think so. And they quenched it. They ignore the voice. They reject God. And then they remember it. The rich man's in agony because he starts thinking about other people in his family. He answered, 
Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. It's very interesting. Whenever I teach about heaven, hell, and the afterlife, people instantly think of their family members or loved ones. Instantly. It's just like it's, it's who have passed on. And they'll say, you know, what about my uncle who didn't know Christ? Or my neighbor who is Jewish? What about my grandma? See, she was such a good person. Is God going to throw her into hell? As, again, it's all accusation against God. <laughs> and that's what this rich man thinks. He thinks, I got five brothers. I don't want them to go to hell. Send Lazarus. That'll scare them. <laughs> and Abraham replied, well, you know what? They actually have Moses and the prophets. Let them read their own Bible. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. Now watch this little ironic verse to Jesus' story. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wink, wink. Who's telling this story? Jesus. The only human being who went to hell and lived to tell about it. See, Jesus ends his story with a little bit of foreshadowing. Like right now, if a dead man appeared and said, it's true. Everything Tim's talking about is true. Hell is real. It is hot down there. How would you react? We'd have an altar call and you'd be like, oh, well, where do I sign on the dotted line, right? Would you love God more? No. You would fear God. But what's the point? Jesus' point is that your heavenly father's plan for your life has never been and never will be to scare you into loving him. Can, can, can you scare somebody? Can you threaten somebody to make them love you? I'm a dad. I want my kids to love me. Kids, come here. I have decided you better love me or I am going to beat you, okay? You do what I say or, or you love me, yeah? They, now, they would fear me. They would obey me, but they wouldn't love me, and it will not change their heart. It will harden it. See? Same with your heavenly father. He knows fear or punishment will not change your heart. What changes your heart? Sacrifice. Love. When you see someone lay down there, like, like for me, most Christians, unfortunately, use hell as a scare tactic. When I was seven years old, I went to a Christian camp where the counselor, I will never forget this, he got us around the campfire at night, and we, he held up a marshmallow over the flames. And as it kind of melted, he said, guys, I want to be straight with you. Everybody spends forever somewhere. And the marshmallow kind of drops, you know, and he goes, some to heaven, some to, and then he drops the marshmallow. Psst, everlasting torment. They said, would anybody like to be saved? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I, think I would like all our hands shot. And we, and, we, and, we, and we prayed, we sang a song, and then we had s'mores. That's like kind of how it went. For six straight summers, I did the same exact thing. Every summer, the marshmallow, and I would pray for God to save me and hope, because if the last one didn't take, I got to pray again. But... Guess what happened? I come home from camp, and, that, and nothing would change. Nothing would change, and that's the problem. Because a lot of people uh, think, i got to become a Christian so I get my fire insurance. Maybe that's why you're here today. I come to church because I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I pray a prayer because I don't want to go to hell. I want my fire insurance. I better raise my hand. The problem is, is you're not being filled or motivated by the love of God. Your faith is motivated by fear, and fear can't touch your heart. Only one thing transforms your heart and allows the life of Christ to live in it. What is it? It is radical, cross-centered love. It is the only thing that touches it. See, how do you cross over the chasm? We're separated. That is what the cross is. The cross is our crossover. When we look at what Jesus, why do we sing the wonderful cross? 
Because on the cross, the Bible says Jesus became sin for us. And he was separated from the Father. He received the punishment, eternal eternity in hell. Did you know the Apostles' Creed, it talks about Jesus descending into hell. In other words, the fire of God's wrath fell on Jesus. And he went to hell for you so you could have heaven. You understand? The cross is our crossover. It's why we wear it around our neck. It's why we worship. It's the only way you can bridge this chasm. And it's only when you understand what Jesus suffered. Ripped from the Father. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I'm all alone. And he did that so you would never have to be alone. When Jesus was raised by the power of God on the third day, he said, you know what? Now I'm going to show you. I have the power to move you from death to real life. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And if you humbly trust in my righteousness, not your own, you're going to actually begin living a righteous life because I'm going to live through you. And I will deliver you from your self-imposed hell so that you can live a life of true love, of authentic compassion. Not the good things, but the God thing I created you for. That's how you cross over this chasm. The cross is our crossover. And it's the only one, by the way. Jesus said in John 14, he said, I am what? Let's say it together, church. The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through who? Except through me. This is a pretty bold statement, kind of confronts people who say, well, I think all paths ultimately lead to God. You know, Buddha, Allah, whatever. Just use whatever name you want for God. In the end, everybody makes it to heaven. That's not true. It's not true because Jesus died because he said the exact opposite. And understand, if you're a Christian, there is no other God, there's no other faith who has at its center a God who pours out the punishment on himself so that he can save his enemies. That is the heart of the God you believe in. See, the doctrine of hell, doctrine of hell, it's very hot on the outside. It's hard to swallow for some people, but it has a very, very sweet center. Unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much Christ loved you. You will never know how much it cost Jesus to save you. Unless you see the hell that Christ went through, you will never know how much your heavenly father loves you. You know what the Bible says about your father's heart? Second Peter says this, it's beautiful. It says, the Lord is patient with you. Can we read this together? Not wanting anyone to perish, but what? everyone to come to repentance. This is the good news. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Not one single person. That is not what he created you for. That is not what you were designed for. It is not the purpose. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why he sent Jesus. To go through hell so that you could have heaven. Don't fear God. Love him. Trust him. Don't let preachers scare the hell out of you. Jesus came to love the hell out of you. That's the good news about hell. Hell reveals our heart, but more importantly, it shows us God's heart. Could you trust a God like that? See, some people take away the doctrine of hell because they think, we want to make God seem more loving. This makes him seem mean. If you don't have the doctrine of hell, you won't understand what love is. If you just hear popular sound bites about it, you can accuse God of cruelty, whatever. But God didn't send his son to bring judgment, but to bear your judgment and go to hell for his enemies. And if you understand that, if you take that into, from your head to your heart, you know what happens? You will cross over to a different kind of life. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do right now. Let's take a moment to pray. I'm going to ask all our campuses, just bow your heads where you are. Talk to God about this. I know the Holy Spirit's been speaking to some of you. He did speak to me this week. We're going to take a moment to pray right now. 
Father, I pray we're just going to clear some space, just a minute or so, Father, for us to confess what you already know about us. You already know our plans to save ourselves and all the ways that we have stiff-armed you and missed out on the life of love you created us for. So, Father, right now we just take a moment as your children to admit our spiritual poverty. We're like Lazarus. We have nothing to offer you. Not health, not wealth, not any good deeds, Father. Even our best are filthy rags. And so we just admit that, Father. But we believe you conceived and created us in love to be part of your family forever. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we know it will be so. We have the assurance that our sins are forgiven. We have the assurance that when you see us, you see the righteousness of Christ. Let us come alive right now to your spirit. Keep your heads bowed if you would. Just take a moment to pray to God. And if you're here today, you've never crossed over from death to life. You said, I have never had that moment, not even around a campfire being threatened. (laughs) This is your moment. This is your moment. Simply admit your sins. Say, Father, I have fallen short and I want a new life. I turn from my sin. I repent and I turn to you. Talk to Jesus. Say, thank you, Christ, for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. Would you now save me? Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Be my Savior. Settle that thing today. Father, I thank you now for men and women all across this state, people watching online, on the radio. They're making decisions for you, Father, that will follow them into eternity. We thank you for the assurance of salvation that we are to know if we were to pass today, today we would be with you in paradise. Thank you for that promise, Father. Thank you for your provision. I ask now that you would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit to make that reality truth. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.